Hi, I'm Alan. I'm an anaesthetics trainee based in East London and also the podcast lead for Association of Anaesthetics Trainee Committee. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Coffee and a Gas podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by guests Dr. Tommy Perkins and Dr. Ed Cantello. Tommy and Ed are both GPs, but for those listening, they're perhaps better known for being the brains behind Medics Money. I've kindly agreed to come onto the show and discuss some financial well-being matters and answer some of your questions. So thanks a lot, Tommy and Ed, for appearing on our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I think the best way we could start off is, is simply by asking what, what exactly Medics Money is uh, and what advice or services you can offer to doctors. Yeah, definitely. So I think the Medics Money story starts 14 years ago now. My goodness, I'm showing my age. Uh, when I left medical school, because I was the first in my family to go to medical school, just came from a normal working class family. And I graduated with massive debts because I did medicine as a second degree. So I had a student loan, a bank loan, credit cards. I owed my mum some money. And then I got my first paycheck. And I couldn't believe how much I got paid versus how much debt repayments were. And I was just in a blind panic. It sounds wonderfully naive, but I didn't really know what the starting salary was for a doctor. I just kind of assumed that it would be quite high. And then when I got my paycheck, it was a real shock. And I realized that I would have like hardly any money left at the end of the month once I'd paid off my debts. So I was just in a panic, basically. And during med school, I'd had no training in how to manage my finances. Like I didn't know about debts. I didn't really know about student loans. I didn't know how to save. I didn't I didn't know anything about how much tax I should pay. I didn't know that I could save thousands of pounds in tax just by claiming tax rebates. So I just started teaching myself about money, really, and reading loads of books. Podcasts weren't really a thing back then. That's how old I am. And attending lots of financial talks. And I learned how to, as I say, claim tax rebates on super expensive things that we have to pay, like the GMC fees, the uh, anesthetic exams in your case, which I know are super hard and super expensive. And I claimed back thousands of pounds in tax legitimately. And then uh, some friends were like, well, can you help me do that? I was like, yeah, it's really easy. Just do it like this. And they were like, why has no one ever told us this before? I was like, I don't know, but this is how you do it. And then before I knew it, I was helping way too many people uh, because word kind of spread. And I tried to like shut it down because I didn't really want to get into that. I, I love being a doctor, still am a doctor. So I tried to shut it down and it just wouldn't die. Then I I think I was doing it. I was doing it A and E locum actually, and then I bumped into Ed. And isn't that right, mate? Yeah, absolutely. I was doing my first uh, F two placement um, in A and E in Chichester, and um, yeah, that's why I met, met Tommy. But it's one of those things where you know how you. Um, so just as a bit of background, before I kind of got into medicine, I was an accountant and a tax advisor. And um, when, it, when when we joined, when we started in A and E, they said, you know, right, there are eleven of us there. I think we just started you know, give one interesting fact about yourselves. And I really couldn't think of anything to say. So I said, oh, I used to be an accountant. And I think that kind of just spread uh, through A&E. Before, Why is there an accountant who's now a doctor? Um, and I think Tommy Tommy heard that because I'd never met Tommy before, but he, uh, he'd heard that and we got talking. And uh, yeah, we agreed to set up Minutes Money. Yeah, definitely. And so we started like insanely small, literally just helping our friends and friends of friends. But Thanks to everybody finding it useful and spreading the word. And thanks to people like yourself, Alan, inviting us on podcasts like this. We've now grown 
to quite a good size. So we have our own podcast, which is coming up to 750,000 downloads, which is just nuts because the first few episodes we recorded in my garage with one microphone and they're still up there for everyone to listen to, but they are a bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's good. We got over 40,000 people who get their free financial CPD via our email. And the other thing that we noticed was that there's lots that you can do yourself, uh, and we're definitely a big fan of doing that. But if you do need help, doctors' finances are so complicated, and you need a specialist who specializes in helping with doctors. And there wasn't really an agreed definition of what a specialist was. So obviously, with Ed's unique skill set being an accountant, we can find out who is really a specialist and who is good. And we've added all of the people that we think are the best advisors in the business, who have been through our rigorous due diligence process. And if you need help from a specialist who actually understands doctors' finances and works with doctors and has reviews from doctors and has passed our due diligence, then you can get your circumstances matched to one of those experts via our website. And over 10,000 doctors have done that now, which is really great because we love helping people to help themselves. But also, if you can't help yourself, the main thing is just to do something. Don't do nothing. So, yeah. Wow, what a super interesting story behind Medics Money. And it sounds like you offer fantastic services to all doctors out there. I mean, I can definitely resonate with having absolutely no clue about finances when I first started working. And I also remember the shock of my first paycheck. So I guess on that topic, lots of final year medical students around the country will be finding out around now that they've passed their finals. What are some simple or quick things you recommend they should do that can have an immediate positive impact on their finances? Yeah, so there are there are definitely a few things that people can start doing sort of straight away when they become doctors. And of course, uh, congratulations to all of you who have passed your finals. Um, the first thing we would say is when you get your pay slips and any other tax documents, just please make sure you, you keep them somewhere safe. You know, Normally, you can get them now for the uh, electronic staff record. Just keep them somewhere safe. Download them. Keep them somewhere safe. You'll honestly, you will, you will um, thank yourself for it later. Um, in particular, if you get a P60 or a P45, make sure you keep those. And just to make sure you know what those are, your P60 is a document you receive when the tax year ends. And it's basically from your employer detailing your tax position in the whole of the, ta the past tax year. Okay, And a P45 is given by an employer once you've left them. So it's really important you keep those documents. In particular, if you down the line want to get a mortgage, they, want to, they might want to see your P60s, for example. And also keep all your receipts as well for any professional expenses that you incur because you can make a claim to get the tax back on a whole host of them. You know, your GMC fee, your indemnity insurance, if you're a member of the BMA, later on down the line, your Royal College uh, fee, they all really rack up. So keep a receipt of those because you can claim all those back and get the uh, get the tax back. The other thing to say is when you start getting your payslip, just check it often because it often does come back wrong, okay? Um, and you can find a guide, by the way, to check in your payslip on our website if you're interested in that. Um, your payslip will have not only your pay, but also something called your tax code on there, which is a code It's created by HMRC. It tells your payroll department how much tax to deduct from your salary. Um, and when you start your job as an F1, this should be correct, um, but pretty soon this will start to potentially go wrong, okay? Um, in particular, when you, you know, it's down the line, you know, you're just gonna be starting soon as an F1, but when you move to become an F2, uh, and if you move trusts, it's very likely that HMRC will put you on an emergency tax code and um, you'll overpay tax quite significantly. So as soon as you get your first um, pay slip from your, as an F2, check it. You know, you may, if you find that your pay has gone dramatically down from when you're an F1, it's almost certainly because your tax code's wrong. 
uh, and we can help you check that and change that as well. Okay, we've got a whole blog on that on our website. Um, so that's definitely something to to think about down the line. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just add a few like simple things as well. Um, so if you're listening to this and thinking, oh my goodness, where do I get all these resources? Go to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook. We've got a really nice, simple ebook, which just gets you started. It's called What Medical School Doesn't Teach Us About Money, but it just takes you through everything that you need to do at a basic level and just doing the basics will get you 95% of the way there. So talking about the basics, if you are struggling financially, you need to get a budget and use something called pay yourself first, which is a great little trick. I think, I'm not sure if I can claim that I taught you this, Ed, but I definitely kind of opened your eyes to it. I mean, Ed's obviously the expert, but basically, you know, small amounts of spending add up. So if you spend £7.50 a day on lunch at the hospital, over a career, that can add up to £139,000 of money that you've wasted on hospital food. And no hospital lunch or food is worth £139,000 with no, no offense to our colleagues who work in the hospital canteen. It ain't the best. So have a look at your latest bank statement, okay? And go through it like systematically, just like you go through your patient's test results and work out where you can trim spending because small amounts of spending like lunch in the hospital every day really really add up okay now i mentioned debt i think we're going to talk about debt in a bit more detail later on but one thing that i didn't understand when i graduated was that there's good debt and there's bad debt so bad debt is high interest rate debt that's historically used to buy something that depreciates like a store card that's used to buy clothes and credit cards okay high interest rate debt bad debt you need to repay that bad debt as a as a priority because it is just destroying your wealth, okay? But then at the other end of the scale, there's good debt, which is low interest rate debt that has been used to buy things that historically appreciate in value. For example, your mortgage, okay? So repay your bad debts first. And if you're struggling to get the money together to repay them, get a budget and stick to it. And then when you've got your budget, what you do is something called pay yourself first, where every month when your wages land, you automatically remove from your account the money you need to repay your debts, okay? And then what's left is your spending money for the month. And over time, you just learn to live on less. You're repaying your debts automatically, your bad debts, and you'll be all good. And guess what? Once you've repaid your bad debts, then you've got that spare cash flow every month and you can start channeling that into investing and you're literally making money while you sleep doing investing. So the same skills that are needed to get you out of debt if you're in debt after medical school are the same skills that are needed to build wealth long-term and, and it's just simple stuff. None of this is complicated. Like, you know, this this should be very easy for doctors, but because no one's ever taught us it, if no one's ever taught us it, we're not gonna know it. But once you find out about it, easy. Hmm. It's all great advice. And I would echo um, the tip about signing up to the electronic staff record as soon as possible because all my F1 pay slips are still in a mess somewhere, I think. Yeah, when I was um, F1, it's so long ago that they just came to the mess and there was just this huge pile of everyone's pay slips in the mess uh, and P60s and P45s. And I was just thinking, oh my goodness, like if, if they haven't got those now, it's so important to keep them because if you have any problems down the line, and, and least of all, like at the moment with the junior doctor's pay dispute, everyone's posting their F1 pay slips from 15 years ago. And guess what? The pay is about the same. So if that's not a good enough reason to keep them, I don't know what is. 
So one other thing I think none of us really understand, particularly at the junior level, is the NHS pension scheme. It's something which is obviously very complex um, and, you know, couldn't possibly explain all of it in this podcast. Uh, but for those of us that are more junior or, or have just started working, is anything we should be particularly aware of at our level or, you know, anything we should be checking on our pay slips, for example? Yeah, so so the pension is complicated, but I think like the, the key points are that it's still a good deal for the vast majority of us, okay? And if you're, I hate, I hate this term junior doctor, but if you're a highly trained medical professional who is not yet a consultant, specialist, staff grade or GP, therefore we call you a junior, which I hate. Um, but if that is you, then, you know, you might have heard about the tax problems in, in the news, okay? And in general, they will not be affecting you, okay? So this isn't advice, but I just cannot think of a reason why a junior doctor would not be in the pension scheme. And maybe some people are saying, well, I don't have to, I can't afford it. And that's fair enough because when even when I was locuming to pay down my debts, I still contributed to the pension because that's how valuable it is. So it's a really, really important part of our overall reward package. So if you're a junior doctor, this isn't advice, but I just cannot think of a single reason why you wouldn't be in the pension, okay? Because it's still a great deal. And in terms of what do you need to do, so your payslips is a good place to start, but there's also something called a total reward statement. And you need to get one of these every year, usually around October time. It's totally free. I think some of them even come on your ESR, but if not, you go to totalrewardstatement.co.uk, I think it is, and just get that statement and just keep it somewhere safe because that is a permanent record of your pension at that point in time. And you need to do that every year. And around October time is a good time to do it because that's usually when it's updated. Now, if you are a higher earner, um, firstly, congratulations. Thank you for all the hard work that you do in the NHS. That high salary is well earned. But there's also something called an annual allowance service and pay extract. And this is a reasonably new thing from NHS pensions. And it's really, really simple to get. And this just tells you where you are in terms of tax, okay? So I got mine, um, Ed's got his recently. It's super easy to get. And again, we've got a, a guide on how to do this. So uh, maybe I could circulate the link or pop it in the show notes or something, but we've got a guide on all the paperwork that you need to get. But essentially to sum up for juniors, the pension is still a great deal for the vast majority of us. It just needs a bit of annual maintenance. And if you just get your total award statement every year, you should be in good shape great i mean i had no idea what the total award statement is i'm going to look that up as soon as i finish recording this and i guess on the other side so for example for consultants etc there's obviously been a lot of changes recently with regards to the pension rules would you be able just to do a quick headline summary into what those changes are <laughs> yeah uh quickly summarize and pension tax is like a oxymoron i think <laughs> but i'm gonna give it a go so you're right there were some big changes recently so the big change that you might have heard about especially if you listen to our podcast is that the lifetime allowance uh which the lifetime allowance basically it places a limit on the total amount of pension benefits that individuals can accrue during their working life without getting extra tax charges when you retire and that uh, lifetime allowance limit has been frozen since April 2020 at £1,073,100, I think, mate. Is that the right number? Yeah, that's it. 
quite random yeah, number, but that's he's why. nodding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the lifetime allowance was frozen, and this caused lots of doctors to reduce their hours or leave the profession altogether. Uh, but in the most recent budget, with effect from the 6th of April, there will be no lifetime allowance tax charged. So that does eliminate the threat of significant tax charges if your pension exceeds that £1,073,100. So that's a good thing at retirement. But they also changed something called the annual allowance. So as you might guess from the name, that's an annual allowance, which limits the amount of pension growth. And here's something which people get confused about quite a lot, especially non-specialist advisors. It's the growth in the NHS pension, not the contributions, okay? Um, so that limits the growth that you can achieve each year. It was 40,000 of growth each year inside the NHS pension, but it's been increased to 60,000. So this should help most doctors to avoid the dreaded annual allowance tax charge in most years, but not all. Um, so it's interesting that they abolished the lifetime allowance and not the annual allowance. If I could have chosen, I would have chosen to abolish the annual allowance because that affects people that are still working. But anyway, they've done it for whatever reasons. Um, a few other changes they did. Um, you might be aware that the annual allowance, which, as I said, is the growth that you can get each year in your pension. It, it, is for, it was, it was 40,000. It is now 60,000. But if you go over certain income thresholds, that 60,000 allowance is tapered down, okay? And that tapering still applies, so that's still an issue. And they also did some really technical things to assess what's called negative growth in the scheme, which is a bit of a fudge, but it's better than it was. So in summary, the pension tax issue that we've all been going on about for years, it's improved, but it's not fixed. And it's really, really important that you check your own numbers if you are a more senior or higher earning doctor. Uh, and again, we have our pensions guide, which shows you how to do that. And we also have a video on our YouTube, which takes you through it in really a lot of detail so that you can understand it yourself. So maybe we could link to that as well. Thanks for summarizing that as quickly as possible. <laughs> So on top of the NHS pension, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, is it worth investing in a separate private pension? And I guess, obviously, the answer to that would be, I guess it depends. But do you have any specific tips for that? Exactly. Like the answer to almost all these questions are that all of our finances are different. And absolutely, the answer is it depends. So I said that the NHS pension was a good deal. And I think it's important to understand the difference between the NHS pension and a private pension to answer this question. So the NHS is generally thought to be a good deal because it's what's called a defined benefit scheme, not a defined contribution scheme. So most private pensions are what's called defined contributions. So you and maybe your employer put some money in a pot and, at, and this pot is invested for you. And then at retirement, you use this pot to pay you money as a pension every year. Now, once that pot is empty, that's it. You, you run out of money, okay? And if inflation is really, really high, that pot is going to be, the value of that pot is going to be destroyed by the inflation. And if the stock market crashes, guess what? You might be retiring a bit later than you planned because the value of your pension has gone down. So that's most private pensions. The NHS pension, as I said, is different because it's a defined benefit scheme. So you and your employer pay a contribution. And this contribution effectively buys you a, a year's worth of membership of the scheme. So there's not really a pot of money, so to speak. 
And then at retirement in the NHS pension, it will pay you a guaranteed index linked inflation proof income for life. So if the stock market goes down, not a problem for your NHS pension. If inflation is running rampant, not a problem for your NHS pension. And it, you cannot run out of money in the NHS pension because it pays you that guaranteed index linked income for life until you die. So if you're saying, would I choose to have an NHS pension or a private pension? Of course, based on what I just said, I would choose the NHS pension because that guaranteed index linked inflation proof income for life. But there are a few cases uh, now, especially given the recent changes to the annual allowance that we just mentioned, where a private pension could make sense. And I think, Ed, like one one scenario is if you're hovering around 100 grand of income. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So if your income is over the £100,000 mark, if you're lucky enough to be in that situation, um, there are some actual disadvantages from a tax perspective because you start to lose uh, your tax-free personal allowance. Um, so for every £2 above 100000 you go up, uh, you lose £1 of your personal allowance. So you're actually getting what we call a marginal tax rate of 60%. And that, that ignores, you know, national insurance, pensions, student loans, etc. So, you know, your marginal rate is actually higher than you'd expect because you lose your personal allowance. And you also lose access to what's called the tax-free childcare scheme, uh, which is where you can get up to £500 every three months, up to sort of £2,000 a year for each of your children uh, to help with the cost of childcare. So if you're kind of around that £100,000 mark, you can think of ways to try and bring your taxable income down below that mark. Um, one way would be to make sure you're claiming all your professional expenses and so on. Um, but another way is to make a personal pension contribution because that will um, be taken into account and will end up reducing what's called your net adjusted income. So if you're around that sort of level, um, it may be worth contributing to a personal pension because you can get yourself below the £100,000 uh, and then um, you know get access to the tax-free childcare scheme, get your personal allowance back and so on. Um, again, you know, as before, you know, we, we're not licensed to give advice. Uh, everyone's got to make sure they do the right thing for their own personal circumstances. Um, but that's definitely a situation where it would make sense potentially um, to, to contribute to a private pension. That's really great advice. And again, a lot of stuff I, I had no idea about. So at the moment, I think like most people my age and at my level, I'm trying to desperately save money towards a housing deposit, which is something which can prove super difficult for doctors considering the, the employment issues that sometimes we face. So uh, do you have any sort of tips in terms of helping us maximize, you know, uh, the deals we can get mortgages? Uh, would you recommend for example any of the help to buy ISA schemes that are out there? Yeah, I mean, with the, the, the help to buy ISA, that, there used to be a, a very um, specific thing called the help to buy ISA, uh, which has now been discontinued. But we now have something called the lifetime ISA, um, which can help first of buyers and I think is actually more generous than the previous help to buy ISA. Um, to set up a, if you set up a LISA or lifetime ISA, um, for every £1 you put into it, the government will put 25p in uh, up to a maximum of £4,000 you put in and then the government will put in a bonus of £1,000. Um, and the rules state that you can you know, only set up a LISA before the age of 40. So if any of your listeners are coming up to the age of 40 uh, and want to set up a LISA, you know, make sure you do it before your 40th birthday. Uh, and then you can contribute into it until the age of 50. Now, you can take the money out for one of three reasons, but the first one is to buy your first house, as long as that's less than £450,000. Um, and it's actually, I, I, you know, again, we can't give investment advice, but, you know, the 
the sort of general wisdom is that these licenses are very advantageous. You know, think about it, you put in a pound, you know, the government's going to automatically give you 25p. I think they pay it in sort of the month after you put in your money. Um, so you're getting money from the government to help to buy a house. The one thing to say is um, if you, um, you know, there have been stories in the press about people that have decided that they want to buy their dream house and they found it's £500,000 and that's above the £450,000 limit. And then they realise that they, the money they've saved in the LISA can't be used at all. So that's one thing to bear in mind if you want to set up a LISA, you know, you know you, your house has to be um, market value less than 450000 or you can't get the money out. And if you take the money out, you know, without it being a qualifying reason, you have to pay a 25% withdrawal charge. So that's something to think about. The other reasons, the other ways you can take it out are, um, you know, if you, after the age of 60, you can take out your LISA um, money um, to help with retirement. And if you are terminally ill at any point, you can take out the, the whole amount. Um, so in general, at Medics Money, we are we are big fans of, of LISAs. Um, just bear in mind that there are various conditions attached to them. Uh, and as per usual, you know, make sure that uh, your personal circumstances uh, match what you do. Yeah, so thanks for that, Ed. That's really great advice. Uh, so... Moving on, I recently checked my student loan balance and it was in excess of £90,000, which again was a massive shock to me. And not only that, but thanks to the interest rate, I somehow owe more now than I did when I qualified. So is there actually any benefit to, you know, contributing more towards a student loan than we need to? And I imagine this will depend, you know, whether we started university before or after the, the increase in fees in 2012. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm glad you asked this question because... Obviously, with my story, student debt is a topic really close to my heart. And I, I'm really glad we're talking about junior doctors pay at the moment. Uh, but I don't think the student loan thing is getting anywhere near enough airtime. Because as you say, your your loan balance has gone up um, despite you making repayments. So student loans are not like most other loans, okay? And you already mentioned that there's different types or what they call plans of loans. So because I uh, was at university before 2012, I was on a plan one student loan, okay? Um, I imagine you're on a plan two student loan. Yes. And they are very different. And as you said, since since my time, fees have gone up and the interest rate on the plan two loan is also a lot higher. But the, the student loan is a bit unusual because you only repay the money if you earn above certain thresholds, okay? So if you're on a plan two student loan, you currently only pay, make any repayments if you earn above £27,295 a year, okay, at the time of recording. Above that amount, you simply pay 9% of your income above that £27,295 as the repayment, okay? So the implication of that is that the size of your debt bears no relation to how much you repay. And that's really important when you're thinking about overpaying. Other things to mention is that if you stop working or lose your job, then the, you can stop paying off the loan. Again, that's an advantage over a traditional loan. And after a certain period of time, usually 25 to 30 years or age 65, depending on which plan you are, the debt is completely wiped. Okay. Again, not usual for a normal loan. So, so plan two loans, the current interest rate of those is 6.9%. And the big problem for doctors is that on a plan two loan is that medical school takes a long time. You amass a massive debt. The interest rate is not great. As I said, at the current rate is 6.9%, which is just crazy to me. It's probably like commercial rates, and this is not a commercial loan. 
And because we spend many, many years uh, as junior doctors on very low pay, the debt can increase faster than you pay it off because you only repay, as I said, 9% over that threshold. And so the big problem here for me is I was able to repay my debts uh, and it was hard. There was 85,000 pounds of them, but I was able to repay it. I don't think most doctors these days are ever going to repay the loan. They're just going to pay 9% of their earnings over that 27,295 pounds threshold. And in effect, it just becomes a graduate tax of 9% or over 27,295 pounds. And I don't think this... I don't think it's getting enough airtime because getting rid of my debts was a major step for me into getting, you know, getting my finances sorted. And I, I, I'm unfortunately say, to say that I think most doctors now are just going to have this 9% graduate tax until um, the debt is wiped. Um, so, yeah, in terms of making overpayments, the paradox there is that you could make overpayments and it could end up actually costing you more money because the size of the debt bears no relation to how much you pay. So you have to be really, really careful when thinking about making overpayments on your student loan, because as I said, you could you could pay down £10,000 of your student loan and it would save you absolutely, it would cost you money to do so because you're still, if you're never going to pay off, you're still going to just pay that 9% uh, of your of your earnings over. So yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does actually, and I've—I mean, I've heard it described as a graduate tax, um, and as you said, because obviously it gets wiped after a certain amount of years. So it seems at some point, you know, if you do pay more into it, then as you said, you, you're going to end up losing out. Yeah, I mean, I guess the exception there is if you could pay in enough to pay it off, but I'm guessing you don't have ninety grand uh, burning a hole in your back pocket. Uh, no, yeah, 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 me neither. Right. So I just think that the key points are that the size of the debt bears no relation to the repayments, and making repayments does not necessarily save you money. In fact, it could cost you money. But also, I don't think it's getting enough airtime. This is a nine percent graduate tax, and yeah, it's it's bad. Yeah, I have to agree. Speaking of hopefully one day having £90,000 to burn a hole in my pocket, investing money is, uh, you know, something a lot of doctors are interested in and something you all, I guess, want to do, but probably don't know enough about. Do you have any sort of tips or resources that you can share with us, you know, anything on the Medics Money website, for example? Yeah, definitely. So Ed loves tax, complex tax. I love investing and simple stuff. Um, So the reason I love investing and the reason that doctors should love investing are many, many, but I just have a think about a few. So as a doctor, we go to work and we exchange a unit of our time, an hour, for a unit of money. Okay, so we are trading our time for money. There is no passive income making as a doctor. Okay, whereas if you can start investing, then your money is working for you day and night while you're sleeping, while you're working. It's just slowly accruing in the background. You don't have to go there. You don't have to put in hours of time. So as doctors, we trade our time for money and it's a very hard job and the hours are really long. Investing is a way to circumvent that a bit and get your money working for you. Another thing I said that the NHS pension was a great deal for the vast majority of us. Most of us now, or or all of us, uh, will be in what's called the 2015 section of the pension. And the significance of that is that in the older sections that more senior doctors might be on, the pension retirement age was 60 and 65, respectively, for 95 and 2008 scheme. Now, in the 2015 scheme that most of us are now in, 
the retirement age is linked to state retirement age. It's not fixed. It's linked to state retirement age. And so if you want to keep working as a doctor, in my case, until 68, then fine. If you don't, you're going to need a backup plan and you're going to need some money that's going to allow you to retire earlier than your pension. And of course, you can take your pension before the age of 68, but it's reduced. So if you've got investments that you build up slowly over your entire career, it may allow you to retire early. And I am I do still love being a doctor, but I am on record as saying there is absolutely no way I'm doing it when I'm 68. I just couldn't. It's the, the intensity. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so then you're like, okay, where to start? So our ebook covers this a lot. I've just recorded a couple of YouTube videos about investing as well. But I think the key point is that cash is not a safe haven because of inflation. So I would not consider cash savings to be an investment. And as an illustration of that, in our most recent YouTube video, I showed a graph where if you invested £1 in 1900 in um, cash, uh, bonds, which are essentially buying other people's debts, and stocks, which is you know shares of the stock market that we hopefully know a bit about. So if you took that £1 in 1900, if you invested it in stocks and shares, you'd have £386 today in real terms. If you bought bonds, you'd have £4. And if you had cash, you'd have £2. So stocks, 386 bonds, £4, cash, £2. So leaving it under the mattress is not a realistic option. Therefore, you need to invest it. And, you know, stocks and shares is uh, could be the right thing for you, not advice, obviously. So if you're interested in investing, I would say check out the ebook, check out our YouTube channel and check out our podcast. But I think you're right to raise that because you know, we're trading our time for money as doctors and we need a way to decouple that link between time and money unless we want to work even more hours than we already do, which um, I, I don't I don't know about you. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, so sort of moving on slightly, would, would you recommend things like income protection insurance or life insurance? I mean, I mean, imagine this again would depend on what stage of our career we're at. Yeah, definitely. So insurance is basically... Like I think of it like like the moat around a castle, okay? It's basically a worst-case scenario. If the worst was to happen and you got sick or you couldn't work, could you afford to pay your bills, okay? And, and if the answer is no, then you need to think about insurance. Now, we do have good sick pay in the NHS, and it's important to familiarize with that. But even if you get the maximum sick pay that the NHS provides, which is six months full pay, six months half pay, after five years of working, you know, that, and, and that's if you're in a full-time role, if you're a locum or you're a GP partner like me, et cetera, it, it might be different. So you need to check it out. But if you couldn't afford your bills without your income, you need to think about getting some insurance. Uh, and it's sort of like protecting you against the worst. So if investing is improving your wealth, uh, and that's an offensive kind of thing, uh, insurance is like a defensive kind of thing. It's protecting your possible loss. And there's basically three things you can protect against. You can protect against not being able to earn, so against a loss of income, and that's called income protection insurance. You can protect or insure against getting certain critical illnesses, and that's called critical illness insurance. And you can protect against dying early, which is life insurance usually. So you're absolutely right. It's up to our own individual circumstances. And again, this was something that was why we started Medics Money, because we got slightly irritated about poorly trained financial salespeople masquerading as financial advisors, pushing these products onto doctors. And their products were probably too expensive and probably most of them not necessary. So 
That's why we set up Medics Money. Uh, there's two types of, you, you get these from a financial advisor and there's two types of financial advisor. There's restricted financial advisors that can only advise you on a restricted range of products. So if one of those, their products does not fit your unique circumstances, tough luck, you're, you're not gonna get the best deal for you. And then there's independent financial advisors who are totally independent and can get you a product from the whole market. And we got really annoyed about restrictive financial advisors. So that's why we set up Medics Money. That all the financial advisors that we work with on Medics Money are independent. So they are acting in your best interests. So just have a think about it. But yeah, if you've never thought about it, uh, they just come a certain stage in your life where I felt invincible when I was young. I don't know what happened, but I, I, <laughs> I think it's probably when I had a, a family. But yeah, I think you need to think about this. It's a, certain, a certain age, you start to feel no longer invincible and worried about your own mortality. Yeah. As someone who literally just celebrated their 30th birthday, that's very, uh, <laughs> that's very good advice. You got um, 10 years, uh, you got 10 <laughs> years on you, mate. So yeah. <laughs> you see how it feels yeah. in another 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, so final, final question. Um, I mean, it's clear from the facts I, I'm learning a lot of new information in this podcast that uh, the financial literacy of newly qualified doctors is pretty poor. Uh, and I think the main reason for this is, probably the lack of teaching in medical school. Is there anything you, you think, you know, medical schools could do better or, you know, could make us better prepared for you know, financial life, etc.? Yeah, definitely. I think historically, maybe it's been a bit taboo to talk about money as doctors. Um, now, the reason I needed to talk about money early because I was in financial dire straits and because of the pay cuts that have happened to everyone now, I think most doctors now are unfortunately in financial dire straits. So money is not a taboo subject. We need to talk about it. And my own financial education at medical school consisted of poorly trained salespeople that were masquerading as financial advisors, giving us a lecture uh, that we're all going to die and needed to buy the insurance, essentially so that they could earn a nice commission. That is not financial education. That is selling, not educating. And unfortunately, this is still going on. So that's why we tried to combat that with our education and I think there is a lot more that medical schools could do, but and Royal Colleges, you know, and because we, we've approached all of the Royal Colleges and some of them are supportive, but often they just say that financial education is not their, their problem. Um, and I guess in some ways that's fair, but they're the ones that are charging these really high fees for exams and everything and not telling us that you can save up to 40% of that by deducting a tax, you know, tax rebate that Ed talked about. So I think everybody in medicine needs to think about the finances of it because really the medical school's job is to produce doctors that are going to be good doctors and work for as long as possible to help as many patients as possible. And if we're all struggling with our finances and getting burnt out because of that, then they're not really doing their job. So if you're from a medical school, uh, open invitation. We will. You can use all of our resources for totally free. We don't charge any money. Same to the Royal Colleges, but... They don't get back to me on emails. And to be honest, when we started, it was a real struggle because, you know, it was just us and our friends. But thanks to everybody sharing it and finding it so useful, you know, we are making a massive impact now. And thanks to, uh, again, for you inviting us on this, because this is a chance. Hopefully people have learned something. OK, so I'd love to work with the medical schools and the Royal Colleges. But to be honest, the profession is rallying around what we're doing anyway. And we're making such an impact anyway. So thanks for inviting us. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if any medical schools or all college people are listening to this, it sounds like a very generous offer. 
I've been making it for three years now, that Jonas offer, and uh, a minority of them taken up on me, but it's out there. It is, you can have the whole lot for free. Like, I can't say yeah. any more than that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at a point, you know, where there's so much being talked about in terms of well-being, and I think, you know, finances are such an important part of that. You know, it's, it's I guess, why we're all fighting for, you know, pay restoration. So I think that's probably all we have time for this episode. Thanks again to Tommy and Ed for agreeing to come on our podcast. Uh, for those listening, please take the time to check out the Med- Medics Money website. It's full of amazing resources. As they mentioned, they have a great ebook titled What Medical School Didn't Teach You About Finances, What It Didn't Teach You About Money. And there's lots of stuff to help you answer any financial questions you may have. As they also mentioned, they also have a great podcast themselves. So please also give that a listen. Hi, I'm Alan, a member of the Association's Trainee Committee and Podcast Lead. Just a quick word to say that the Association's Trainee Conference is taking place this year on the 6th and 7th of July in Leeds, and registration has already opened. It is shaping up to be a fantastic conference with lots of educational talks and workshops, as well as social events already lined up. So make sure you get your study leave booked in and also head over to the Association's website, www.anesthetist.org, to check it out.